The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The sermon today comes from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, we're asking that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see wondrous things in your book, so that we would have our hearts changed, our minds shaped, and our lives conformed to the very image of Christ. Do what only your Spirit can do now, we pray for your help in Christ's name. Amen. In 1991, a sports drink company debuted what would become one of the most memorable and uh, iconic advertisements in sports marketing history. ESPN called it one of the most famous commercials of all time. Anyone know what commercial I'm talking about? I see some nods of heads. It had a catchy song with lyrics that went like this. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Mike is none other than Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players of our time. A whole generation of children grew up mimicking his moves, mimicking his swagger mimicking his dunks. I remember as a kid working on the turnaround fadeaway jumper for hours on end. It would have helped if I was at least six foot six, but (laughs) if you played basketball, you wanted to be like Michael Jordan. In contrast, our scripture text this morning calls us to be like Christ. Believers are to imitate the lowliness, not the greatness, but the lowliness and the humility of Jesus, who came as a servant and even as a slave. We're to imitate his humility, emulate his lowliness. And this morning, with our natural human inclinations to be self-centered and to seek glory, our own glory, this is a convicting and challenging text for us. If we're honest, we're much more eager to mimic the greatness of those who are successful and accomplished than to mimic the lowliness of Jesus, of a slave. As much as we don't want to admit it, we can sometimes be a lot like Jesus' disciples. You remember James and John who came with their mother These were the sons of thunder. Imagine that nickname being given to you by Jesus. And she says, when you get into your kingdom, Jesus, 
Can my son Johnny and James sit on your right hand and on your left hand? They wanted the positions of influence and of power and of prestige. And the other disciples were totally indignant because they were like, we wanted those positions. They beat us to it, to asking for it. And what does Jesus say? Matthew 20, verse 25, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, in this passage, doesn't say, don't aspire to be great. He's saying, go about your greatness in the right way, to be a slave or to be a servant. Be like me in the pattern that I came here to earth. Jesus, in that passage, reveals the very paradox of the kingdom of God. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you at the appropriate time. And so in our passage this morning, we get this picture of Jesus' humility and lowliness. So what I want to do as we begin is look at verse 5. I want to take us to verse 5, and here's where we get the main imperative for this section and even for the section that follows. Paul is continuing what he began in chapter 2 by calling for unity and like-mindedness in the gospel. In 127, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, and now he says, do this through humble, other-centered concern. He did that in verse 3 and 4. And now in verse 5, he says, have this mind... This attitude of humility and selflessness. Look with me in your Bible, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's some ambiguity in the Greek here. It, it reads woodenly like this. Think this among yourselves, which also in Christ. In Christ Jesus. So what's Paul commanding here? I think there are two things in view. But if you only catch the first, you're going to fall short. We have to see both together. The first thing is that Jesus is the ultimate example or model that all Christians are to emulate. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be imitators of me as I imitate who? Jesus, as I imitate Christ. Or in Philippians three seventeen, he says, Join in imitating me. And I assume that he's meaning as I imitate Christ again. So believers are to be humble and selfless like Jesus has modeled for us. So that's the first thing. This is true, but it's ultimately insufficient. If we just try to be more like Jesus, what will we do? We will fail if we don't have the second thing that I think is in view. The second thing is we are to have the very mind of Christ because we have been brought into union with Christ. It's not just try to be more like Jesus, but realize that Christ dwells in us by his spirit to empower us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We saw this a few weeks ago, but I think we have to see this here. We're empowered by God to have the very mind of Christ. So Jesus works in salvation in such a way that believers can indeed now obey. So the very power 
to imitate Jesus is to be is rooted in the fact that we're in Christ. We'll actually see this in a few weeks where he says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. This is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So do it because God is doing it in you. And this is what he means here. Have the very mind of Christ. Exercise the mind of Christ because you have it. Because you've been brought into union with Jesus. So the main point of our text this morning is to have the mind of Jesus because Jesus has brought it about by his power. So his spirit dwells within us. So we can have the mind of Jesus. And then now look at Jesus' example and imitate it, emulate it. But it's not just that because otherwise you would have no power to do it. Everything else in this passage reinforces and supports this argument. And what we're going to do is look at verses 6 through 8 this morning more clearly. And what we want to see is the nature of Christ's work. Now, if you've read your Bible for some time, you'll notice that verses 6 through 11 has this poetic, almost rhythmic quality to it, right? You almost can't help but read verses 6 through 8 without going to 7 and, you know, God will highly exalt him and bestow on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Andy quoted it in his prayer. You almost can't help but go all the way there and there's this poetic quality to it. Many see this as a hymn that either Paul wrote or that he was borrowing and it's seen as sort of the centerpiece or the jewel of this entire letter. It's rich with theology about Christ. It uses what theologians called exalted prose. The rest of it, he's kind of writing, like humming along down here. Like, hey, make, make sure you do these things. Don't do these things. Thanks for your partnership. And then all of a sudden, he goes up here when he talks about Jesus. This exalted prose. So, what we want to see in these verses, or perhaps the the question that this gives us, the answer to these questions is this. What is so great about Jesus' work and example? Why should we have the mind of Christ? So what we're going to see in verses 6 through 8 is three things. In verse 6, Christ's deity. In verse 7, Christ's humility. And then in verse 8, Christ's death. Christ's deity, humility, and then death. So look with me at verse 6. This describes Jesus' humility. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So two questions arise here. What does it mean for Jesus to be in the form of God? And then the second question is, what does it mean for Jesus not to grasp at equality with God? So the first question is essentially asking, is Jesus only like God or is he truly and fully God? That's a critical question, and the phrase form of God is the same one that shows up in form of a servant, this word form in verse 7, but it just basically means outward appearance or shape. So how can we determine whether Jesus is like God, but not fully, or is he truly and fully God? The flow of the text helps us kind of understand it. So walk with me. Look with me at verse 6 again. He says, though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So verse 7, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, very clearly is referring to Jesus' incarnation, his coming to earth, being born as a human being. And so what happens before that? Well, Jesus is in his pre-incarnate state of glory. And Jesus talks about this in John 17, 5. He says, this is in his prayer, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory, and note this, that I had with you before the world existed. This is John 17, 5. So before Jesus came to earth, he was with the Father in his pre-incarnate state of glory. Now, Hebrews 1, 3 says, Actually, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And now, check out this part. He says, through whom also he created the world. So he created the entire world through Jesus before it existed. And then he says, this is the nature of Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What, what, what does that cause us to think? That Jesus is fully God. He's upholding the very universe by his power. So when it says the form of God, it's saying that Jesus is fully divine, equal with God. That's what he means when he says he's in the form of God. So he's not only like God, but he's truly and fully God. Jesus is not less than God, but he's distinct from the Father and the Spirit, which we see in the following verses. So Colossians 2.9 says, For in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or the Nicene Creed puts it this way. We believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, co-substantial with the Father, through whom all things were made. Now we come to the second question which also clarifies it even further. What does it mean for Jesus not to grasp at equality with God? So grasp at could mean two things. Uh, I'll use this water bottle as an example. We're not advertising for Kirkland there. So Jesus could either be reaching for the equality with God that he doesn't have. So he's grasping at something that he, he doesn't have possession of. Or the second is Jesus is not grasping at, holding on to the equality with God that he already has. So, which way is right? Well, the way to understand this is to see the flow of the text again. In verse 7, it says, Jesus emptied himself. This emptying can only make sense with this second meaning, which means he let go of something. He's not going to hold on to it, this equality with God which means he already has possession of it. So in John 5, when Jesus heals the man at the pool on the Sabbath, the the Pharisees get mad at him because he healed on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus say? He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. And the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus meant by that because John later gives us the commentary. This is John 5, 17 and 18. John, John, in writing this, he says, 
And he, Jesus, was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus did not view this equality with God as something to use for his own advantage. This is what it means that he didn't grasp at, he didn't hold on to it, but he let go of it in the incarnation when he came to earth. Because he was looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Jesus didn't hold on to his deity, his power and authority, but he came into the world as a human. And we'll see more of that. This leads us to verse 7. So look with me at verse 7. We saw Christ's deity. Now we turn to see his humility in the incarnation. It says, But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now we get two more questions. In what way did Jesus empty himself? And then what does the likeness of men mean? The phrase emptied himself, the NIV translates it as he made himself nothing. And this is explained by the two participles that follow. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this idea of emptying is defined by taking and becoming. So this doesn't mean that Jesus emptied himself of his deity, which we'll see in just a moment. Uh, People used to think this. It was the kenosis theory that Jesus somehow ceased to be God. We don't think that's right. But instead, Christ clothed himself with humanity that veiled his deity during his earthly life. This is what it means to be taking on, becoming like a servant. Jesus was born in the likeness of men. This is the second question. What does that mean? Well, it means that he became fully human in the incarnation. Jesus remained fully God, but was fully human. And this is one of those mysteries for us that we can't fully comprehend. But the point is really straightforward. In the incarnation, Jesus humbled himself to become fully human, even to the point of being a slave. John Calvin writes this, Christ indeed could not renounce his divinity, but he kept it concealed for a time that under the weakness of the flesh, it might not be seen. So the picture is Jesus in his divine nature came to earth and put on the clothes of humanity so that his glory was cloaked, that he appeared as a servant or a slave. Uh, This reminds me of... uh, something the Washington Post did back in 2007. They, they took famous violinist Joshua Bell, who is, you know, very famous, and he played his multi-million dollar Stradivarius violin in the subways of Washington, D.C. But he was just wearing a ball cap and normal plain clothes, and some of you know this story, and, you know, about a thousand people walked by. He's playing this amazing, you know, whatever he plays, uh, and, and like seven people stop to listen. You know, his tickets go for 200 plus dollars. People are throwing change, you know, thinking he's just some subway performer. He gets uh, $52 in change because one person recognized him and threw him a 20. (laughs) So here was one of the greatest violinists of our time hidden in plain sight. And that's what it is with Jesus, except that this is the creator and sustainer of the universe and everything in the world is existing because of the word of his power. And he enters into his creation and is hidden in plain sight as a normal human being. 
It's an astounding wonder that God would enter into our world to live among us. In some ways, this truth is too great for us to comprehend. But that's what he's getting at. Paul is saying, have the humility of Christ and see it that the very creator of the world has come into our world. We, we see a picture of this, don't we? When Jesus, right before his crucifixion, he washes his disciples' feet. So here they are gathered at the feast of the Passover and none of the disciples were willing to do the dirty work. It's kind of humiliating. And, and so there they are all reclining and, and they all have dirty feet, which would have been very shameful. It's like not washing your hands before a meal. And, and, and so Jesus gets up, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around him, and goes disciple by disciple, bending over, stooping at their feet, washing, wiping, getting that basin of water, getting all messy, drying their feet with the towel wrapped around him. Imagine the awkward silence in that room. And then when Jesus finishes, takes the towel off, puts on his garment again, reclines at the table, and then what does he say? Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So marvel at the humility of Jesus. The infinite God becomes an infant. The creator of all things lies in a cradle where oxen feed. The sustainer of all life and breath is now sustained at his mother's breast. The omnipotent one the all-powerful one, cries to be held. The eternal God walks the earth as a creature. We will spend all eternity marveling at this reality. It, it, it will boggle our mind, and we will still not plumb the depths of it. How? Why? Why would God come down into his creation? How is it possible that the infinite, immortal, everlasting God comes into the universe as a seven pound, six ounce, 20 inch baby that is utterly helpless? So this hymn that we have in verses six through eight is not just theological, though it is packed full of theological truth. It is also doxological. It's to awaken our hearts to worship. No one wants to be humble unless you see the glorious beauty of Jesus in his humility. And you say, oh, I want to be like that. Look how he loved us. Look how amazing he is. This passage descends even further. It goes from his pre-incarnate glory, his descent to earth, and now to his death on the cross in verse 8. Look with me at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. So, continuing from verse 7, it now says that he was being found in human form, like the likeness of men. What does it mean to be found in human form? It means that Jesus is, was fully human in every way. His humanity could be observed and examined and investigated. This is why we get four gospel accounts that take painstaking detail to show us that Jesus was fully human. When he walked, he eventually got tired. When he didn't eat, he hungered. When everyone else slept, he slept. He was born. He grew up from an infant to become a man. When he got cut, he bled. When he got sad, he wept. When he worked, he tired. Think about this thing. This blew me away as I was studying this. In the incarnation, Jesus experienced sleep for the first time. He never had to sleep before that. God doesn't get tired. He upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. And in his glorified state, he will not sleep. He's holding us together right now. But during his time on earth, he experienced what we experience every single night. And we got an extra hour last night because we need it. We get tired. We get fatigued. And Jesus is holding it all together. But when he was on earth, he was fully human. The hymn takes another step downward. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So he didn't hold on to or cling to this rightful authority and position and power, but he let go of it, being cloaked in humanity so that he would become a servant, he would become a slave and die for his people. He took the lowest place, a humiliating death on the cross. So I was trying to illustrate this, and illustrations just fail to kind of capture the, the, the beauty of this, but I'll try. It's like if uh, I bought one of those little glass cages and created a little ant colony. So brought a bunch of ants. I'm the creator and sustainer of this ant colony, and I give them food and water and whatever else ants need. And then as I see the terrible plight of these ants, I say, I'm going to make myself one of them and go down into their world in order to save them. That would be utterly outrageous and ridiculous. And that's exactly what God did in coming to us. Utterly outrageous, utterly ridiculous that God would come, not just come and walk among us, but that he would die for his creation. Creatures that he made, he would die at their hands in order to save them. This is the wonder and the majesty of the cross, of the gospel, of our Savior. Jesus dies for us. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable are his ways. Now, it says that Jesus was obedient to whom was he obedient? From the context, I think it's clear that Jesus obeyed God the Father. This was an active obedience to take the form of a slave, to be humiliated and to succumb to death. So when Jesus was being arrested, Peter pulls out his sword, cuts off the dude's ear, and what does Jesus say? Put away your sword, and then he says this, 
Matthew 26, 53. Do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So Jesus had the power at his disposal in that moment, but he didn't exercise it. He was not an unwilling participant to his crucifixion. John 10, 18. Jesus says, no one takes it from me, talking of his own life. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So Jesus went to the cross of his own volition. And then in the garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39, Jesus says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but what? As you will. Jesus is obeying his father all the way to the cross. Or Isaiah 53, that speaks of the suffering servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet what? He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus didn't go to the cross with protesting all the way. I'm innocent, I'm innocent. No, he knew exactly his mission and he was walking in obedience to his father. So what our hymn does is it begins at the glories of the pre-incarnate Christ, descends to earth, and then descends all the way to the depths of the cross. And then next week, Pastor Sam will bring us back up out of that. And we'll see the exaltation and the glory of Christ. But what we see here is the pattern of the Christian life. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And now what, Paul, what is Paul calling us to? This Christ-like humility. Because those who exalt themselves, God will humble in eternity. And so he's showing us the pathway, the paradox of the Christian life. We must go low in the pattern and enabled by the very power of God to be humble. And the final note of this hymn is this crescendo of the cross, even death on the cross. The cross was not a heroic or noble thing. It was shameful, cruel, and sadistic. No one wore it as jewelry. It was this object of torture. Jesus died like a common criminal, experienced the greatest humiliation. And so when we say, how humble was Jesus? Just look at the cross. So this hymn reveals again, the infinite, eternal God comes to endure agony and torment and cruelty and abuse and excruciating punishment that he did not deserve to do what? to reveal his glory and his beauty and his love. So Paul is appealing to Christ's example and to what he's accomplished so that we this morning would have the very mind of Christ. As part of living in Christ, we now have the power of the Spirit to follow his example, to be selfless and humble. So for those this morning who are not trusting in Jesus right now, we invite you to behold and see the wonder and the majesty and the glory of the lowliness and of the love of Jesus. That Jesus died for sinners. In his incarnation, he reveals the very love of God. And we invite all to come and believe and receive and trust this once for all finished work of Christ upon the cross. No one has ever loved you 
No one will ever love you like Jesus loves. And you have to believe and repent and trust to receive this gift. He was obedient to the point of death, even on a death on a cross for us. For those of us who are following Jesus this morning, as we seek to apply this text this morning, the first thing we have to do is just see and marvel. Behold the majesty and the glory of Jesus. We will never aspire to be like Christ until we see the beauty and the majesty of Christ. It's an easy thing to try to be like someone you admire, someone you think is amazing. Sometimes you see videos of, you know, big time celebrities who either take on uh, a different disguise or they're just nice to normal everyday people, right? They leave like a big tip that's like 200% of whatever the bill is. And we think, wow, that's really cool. I want to be like that if I get that kind of money. And here we have Jesus who sustains the entire world, who has made everything in it. And he comes to earth, humbling himself to become the lowest person on the face of this earth in order to die for his creation. We ought to marvel and praise this glorious Jesus all of our days. What a savior we have in Jesus. Amen? And now let's imitate him. Are we cultivating this Christ-like humility? What are some practical ways we can do that? Who might you encourage this week? Who might you pray for? Who is someone that could use a note of encouragement or a text of encouragement? Is there someone you can serve? Or here in our church family, who is someone you can invite over for Thanksgiving dinner if you got a couple extra seats? Let's not let anyone celebrate alone. Jesus says, invite the poor and crippled and lame and blind when you give a feast. Why? Because they can't repay you, but you will be repaid in the kingdom. That's our motivation. Let's go low, because God's going to exalt us at the appropriate time. How can we go out of our way to show uncommon generosity and hospitality? Or in your family, what would it look like if you became the CEO, the chief encouragement officer of your home. Just calling out evidences of grace. What would it look like, kids, if you sought to serve your siblings? You want the bigger piece of the pie? Go for it. I'll take the smaller one. What it might it look like in your marriage if every marriage took Philippians 2, 3, and 4 really seriously? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You put Brian out of business. We wouldn't need marriage counseling. I know it's not that simple. But really, if, if, if we took Philippians 3, 2, 3, and 4 more seriously, Dan was telling me a couple weeks ago, he makes every couple memorize that whole section when he does premarital counseling. Because you're going to come back to that again and again and again. We will imitate Christ imperfectly and fall short, won't we? We will. But we rest in the reality that Christ has gloriously accomplished this work for us. And so right now, every believer 
has the very Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us, empowering us, so that we can indeed imitate the example of Jesus. It's not a hopeless endeavor now. Because we're in Christ, we have the very Spirit of Christ. We've been brought into union with Christ. His Spirit dwells within us. We can indeed walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is why Paul writes what he does. Not just to set us up for failure, but he's saying, now do it because you can. Because God is at work in you. And our great hope is that we will ultimately be exalted and glorified. And there will be a day when you will do it perfectly. You'll say, oh, today I look like Jesus and tomorrow I'm going to look more like Jesus. What a glorious day that will be. Let's pray. Father, be exalted. Help us to magnify you, behold you in all of your glory and then transform us so that our minds are aligned to your mind. Our hearts beat with the very heart of Christ, and then our hands will manifest Jesus in what we do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.